0: So my name's Alison, and I'll just be leading us in our Bible reading, which comes from Mark chapter 12, um, starting at verse 18 to the end of the chapter. And if you have the Bibles from the back, that's on page 900. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers... The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the scribes approached. When he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he he asked him, Which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbour as yourself. There is no command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God and no one dared to question him any longer. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of God, of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. He also said in his teaching, Be aware beware of the scribes who, who want to go around in long robes who want, and who want, to, want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for, the, just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others, for they all gave out their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on.
1: Good morning Church at Nine, I'm one of the ministers here at OEC and as you heard right at the start, uh, I look after Church at Four, uh, which is a great blessing Uh, and it is is a great blessing to be here with you and opening God's Word with you, so please keep your Bibles open to that passage, that would be great. Uh, Also in your handouts, uh, there's an outline of the talk, you can take notes there, you can see where we're going if you find that a helpful thing to do, so keep that open, that'll be great too. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are the great God who speaks. And so, as you have spoken in this, your word, Father, we pray that we would listen with humble hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the passage we just read, you look at verse 27, Jesus says to a bunch of religious leaders about an area that they think they are experts in, that they are badly mistaken. Isn't that a cutting thing for Jesus to say? In 2018, uh, during a cricket test against South Africa in Cape Town, Australian vice-captain Dave Warner and bowler Cameron Bancroft came up with a plan to use sandpaper to roughen up that one side of a cricket ball to make it swing through the air to give them an advantage in the game that they were playing. They knew it was cheating. It was a plan that Steve Smith at the very least was aware of. At the time, they thought it was a really good idea, all right? No, they wouldn't get caught, surely. They would get the advantage, but they were badly mistaken. Why did they think they could get away with it, with cameras all around the ground? It was only a matter of time before they were caught. At the press conference at the end of the day, they lied about it, saying it was just a piece of yellow adhesive tape. That's all it was. Finally, the truth comes out after an investigation. Steve Smith said that the decision that was made to alter the ball... Contrary to the rules, he said, was a big mistake. And it was a big mistake. Dave Warner, Steve Smith were banned from all international and domestic cricket for 12 months. Cameron Bancroft was banned for nine months. Dave Warner lost his position as vice captain. and would never be considered for a leadership position again. Steve Smith lost his leadership positions in all forms of cricket for at least 12 months. They were badly mistaken. Have you ever been badly mistaken? Well, all of us have, haven't we, at a different time in our lives. Um, Maybe you jumped to the conclusion, a a conclusion about someone that you met, or when something did something that annoyed you, you jumped to a conclusion about what they were doing and then later realised how badly mistaken you were to come to that conclusion, to jump to it. Maybe you've been at the receiving end of being badly mistaken, and you know what that feels like. I think all all of us do. When people have got you wrong, thought badly about you, and there's nothing you can say, there's nothing you can do to help them see it differently. At the core, when people get something totally wrong, there's something that always happens. Their pride stops them listening. That's what happens. We're so convinced that we're right. We fail to hear what people are saying. We fail to appreciate an alternative point of view, and we just get entrenched in this wrong idea. Happens every time, and we're all guilty of it. As we've been walking with Jesus these last two weeks, we've spent time with him in Jerusalem, and as as we've seen that, there's been a growing expectation of judgment. Judgment has been sort of building over the city like a billowing storm cloud. The fig tree was cursed, if you remember back a couple of weeks, and then withered. Jesus condemned the worship in the temple, proclaiming judgment over it in much the same way as the prophets of the Old Testament proclaimed judgment over the first one before it was destroyed. Jesus told a parable predicting the overthrow of the religious leaders. And what we'll see today are the reasons God's judgment is billowing over the city. We see the reasons why they get it so wrong. And at the heart is the problem of pride. Pride that stops them listening. The first group of people, we're going to see a number of people come to Jesus, uh, a couple of people come to Jesus during in this passage. And the first group of people we see coming to confront Jesus are the Sadducees. Now, unlike the Herodians and the Pharisees that we saw last week, it doesn't look like they're coming to test him. It doesn't look like they're coming to trick him, to confront him. They have a question about theology. And they want to see if Jesus agrees with them. It seems they'd love to have Jesus on their side, in an argument with other religious leaders on the topic of the resurrection. Because Mark tells us they don't believe in the resurrection, whereas the other leaders do. And so they tell a story about a woman who comes from a family and gets married into a family that seems to be cursed with early onset death syndrome, one after the other. She marries a man. Before we find anything else about this newly married couple, we get the news the man dies suddenly, leaving no child. She's a widow. According to Jewish law, the brother of the dead man steps in, marries the woman to keep the family line going, but the family line doesn't keep going. He dies too. Happens seven times. Seven men, seven dead, seven times widowed. No child to show. The poor woman must be thinking she's cursed. Maybe there's something wrong with the cooking pot because she dies too. It's so full of tragedy and death, this very quick story, isn't it? But then they come to their conclusion, they ask Jesus, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be, they say? You get the impression this is the best trick in their bag of tricks, don't you? You get the impression that when they're in an argument with other leaders about the resurrection, they trot this one out and they just feel like, oh, yeah, we know what you guys don't know. And they're doing the same with Jesus. You can just imagine the self-important, smug look on their faces as they finish their story and Ask what Jesus thinks, but their smug faces don't last long, do they? Jesus cuts to the core, the heart of why they get it so wrong, and he quotes the scriptures, the same scriptures they claim to know so well, and points them to the error. And he quotes the words of God, no less, to Moses, no less, at the burning bush, where he says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Jesus makes the point that when God said this, he speaks about them as if they are alive not dead and gone forever, even though they died hundreds of years before. He says, no, you are badly mistaken. Those cutting words from Jesus. And this interaction exposes two of the core problems in the leaders of God's people, not just in these guys, but in all of them, really. Where he says, in verse, have a look at verse 24. What's the problem? You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. That's what he says. They don't even consider the power of God. It's as if they couldn't even entertain the idea that God could raise the dead, defeat death. What sort of God do these Sadducees believe in if they don't even think he's powerful enough to defeat death? Not just that, just as bad, they don't know the scriptures they claim to defend. They don't sit under the word of God. Instead, they use it to justify what they already think themselves. That's their approach, isn't it, really? Their attitude to God is the same as the way that they approach Jesus. They want to find out where God agrees with them, not humbly sit at his feet, listen to what it says, change the way that they think, change the way that they live. You know what it's like when you have a conversation with someone who's just uninterested in what they think and nothing else? in what they do and never listens to anything that you say. Everybody knows what that's like, don't we? Uh, When you mention something that happened to you, what they talk about is what happened to them. That was just the same. And they don't actually listen and not interested in what you went through. Well, these men treat God like that. That's what they do. They treat God like that. They stand over the word of God as judges of it, not under the authority of God's word. They're only interested in it when it agrees with what they already think. Could we have the same problem? Could we treat God like that? I want you to write that question down if you've got your handouts out. I want you to hold that question in your head and we'll come back to it in a minute. But let's keep walking with Jesus in the temple courts. The next person we meet coming up to Jesus is a scribe. And when we hear that this guy is a scribe, our radar starts to sort of sound an alarm because the scribes are baddies, aren't they? Uh, at the beginning of chapter 12, uh, the scribes are among those who confronted Jesus back in chapter 11 after Jesus arrived in Jerusalem early that day and made a mess of the temple courts. And demanded, they demanded that Jesus tell them, by what authority did you do these things? So this scribe comes up But he's different to the other scribes, isn't he? He's different to the other leaders we've met. He does, he actually comes with a genuine question. He'd seen Jesus answering the Sadducees and probably the uh, Pharisees and Herodians too. He's impressed with Jesus' answers, and he wants to know what Jesus thinks about an all important question. Verse 28 Which command is more important of all? Jesus doesn't hesitate. He uh, quotes two verses out of the first five books of the Bible. These verses are some of the most quoted in all of the Bible. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is love your neighbour as yourself. Two golden commands that capture what God demands of his people. Love God with with all you have. That's a command that encompasses so many other commands, isn't it? You shall have no other God before me. Do not make an idol. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. We have to love God above all else. Secondly, love your neighbour as yourself. Another command that encompasses so many other commands. Honour your father and your mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not covet. All these commands have at their core the command to love. And it's those two commands that we also see another reason why judgment is hanging over Jerusalem like a storm. These two commands capture the fruit that God longed to see in his people when he came to the temple, but he failed to see. They don't love God, they don't love their neighbor. Instead of love for God in the temple, Jesus found a marketplace and a leadership greedy for money. Instead of love for the neighbor, he found men plotting murder full of hypocrisy and lies and self-importance. And this has been the heart of the problem for God's people ever since he saved them out of Egypt. They don't love God. They don't love their neighbour. That's why they've been judged again and again and again. He accuses them of these things and their religious rituals are just a veneer over the heart that is actually indifferent to God and hates their neighbour. Here are the words of just one prophet. It's going to come up on the screen as he speaks against the religious veneer of the people of his day. Amos chapter 5. I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I have no regard for your fellowship offerings and fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. And you see the words like these all through the prophets. And the scribe picks up on these words really as he he responds to Jesus in verse 33. He says, to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And the scribe responds in a way that reflects the words of God's prophets. And then Jesus responds to the scribe with a comment that surprises. He says, Have a look at it, verse 34. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Why does Jesus say that to him? Well, unlike the other leaders of God's people who have come to confront Jesus or to find out whether Jesus agrees with them, this scribe actually comes to listen. He really wants to know what Jesus thinks. He approaches with humility, he doesn't reproach with arrogance. And he sees religious hypocrisy in the same way that Jesus sees it. And so Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. But that response would have been a surprise to this scribe. Surely. Not far. That means not in yet, doesn't it? As a scribe, one who loved the scriptures, who knew the scriptures so well, who was circumcised, who was a Jew of Jews, who was part of God's people of promise, who was part of God's in, in God's promised land, serving in God's temple, and he's not in the kingdom yet. It just seems a little strange to him, I'm sure. He would have thought he was part of the kingdom already, but Jesus says he's outside. Why? Well, the next interaction actually gives us the answer. At the end of this interaction with the scribe, all the leaders have decided to shut their mouths. You know, they've seen Jesus respond and they think, to answer. I'm not going to ask another question again. I don't want to be put on the spot. By Jesus. And so Jesus addresses the cloud the crowd, and among them is the leaders, and he speaks to them about the identity of the Messiah, the Christ. The leaders of God's people say they're looking forward to the Christ, but the Christ has come and they've missed him. In fact, they want to kill him. And so he pushes them to consider if they really understand who the Messiah is promised to be. And he takes them to Psalm 110. If you've got your Bibles there, actually open it up. If you've got a Bible from the back uh, or from one of the bookcases, it's on page 535. We won't read it, but I want you to have it in front of you so you can see it. So I'd love to hear pages flicking or people just sort of flicking on their phones to find it. Psalm 110. Because really he wants the leaders to go back and have a look at this Psalm 2 and say, well, who does it say the Messiah is? It's a Psalm about the identity of the Messiah. What does this psalm say about the promised king? As you can see, look at verse 1. That's where the quote is from in Mark chapter 12. The Messiah is not just the son of David. He's not just a king in the line of David. David calls him his lord. King David recognises that this one is one he will bow down to too. This king will rule and his enemies will be placed as a footstool for his feet. But not just that, verse 4, he's... He's not just a king, he's a priest king, it says there, who makes sacrifices, who brings people to God. We haven't got time to unpack that, so let's move on. The king is the judge of the nations. You don't want to find yourself as an enemy of this king. You wouldn't want to reject this king. The king is chosen by God to be the one all humanity will bow the knee to. That's what this psalm says about the Messiah. That's who he is. Why did the leaders of God's people fail to see the Christ when he came? Because they didn't have a big enough picture of what sort of king this king would be. They were looking for a king who would agree with them. Who would bow the knee to their will, to their importance, to their significance. Who who would be moulded to fit their ideas of what they think the Messiah should be they didn't want to bow to the king they wanted this king to bow to their ideas of what the king would be like and so when god the Son turns up in jerusalem they want to kill him and it's here that we see the core reason why the storm of judgment is building over jerusalem that day they fail to bow the knee before god's chosen king they fail to recognize the messiah when he comes The reason the scribe in verses 28 to 34 is only close to being in the kingdom is because he needs to reconsider who he thinks Jesus is. He needs to face that. And this is the question he's asking the leaders, and this is the question he's asking the crowd, and this is the question he's asking us. Who do you say Jesus is? The scribe addressed him, look at verse 32, as teacher. And yes, he's a teacher, but he's more than just a teacher. The disciples called Jesus teacher when they were in a boat in the sea about to drown. And they said, teacher, don't you care if we drown? And then Jesus calms the storm and they asked, who is this man? Their understanding of who Jesus was wasn't big enough. And neither is the scribes. What about ours? That's another question I want you to write down and hold because in the next section we see why it is that people fail to recognise the king when he came and it's a problem of pride. After confronting the leaders and the listening crowd with their inability to recognise the Messiah when he's staring them in the face, Jesus launches into a no-holds-barred rebuke of the religious leaders of God's people, warning the crowd that their leaders are... Hypocritical, attention seeking, glory hungry leaders, and they need to reject them. Jesus highlights their hypocrisy. They love their long robes. They love their respect in the community. They, they love the honour they have in the banquets and the synagogues. They love the importance of their role and the power that it brings them. But like their forefathers, the religious leadership before them, they deny justice, they lack righteousness, and they destroy the people of God. Widows' houses that are vowed while they make a show of the length of their prayers. It sounds a lot like the passage we read from Amos, doesn't it? The real reason they fail to recognize the Messiah when he's staring them face in the face, the leadership of God's people, what are they? They're false shepherds who are exploiting the poor under the guise of religious orthodoxy. And they love it. And so they miss seeing Jesus for who he is. The leadership is is, is like a rotten apple that looks shiny from the outside, but on the inside, it's just brown and yuck. They're full of pride and in their pride, they fail to bow the knee to the promised king. But then in contrast, all this pride and power and self-importance, we meet a poor and faithful widow. At the end of the chapter... Jesus and the disciples are watching as people line up to put money in the boxes in the temple treasury. The rich come parading their generosity in the lead up to the Passover festival. And you hear the sound of coins just dropping one after the other into the collection. In stark contrast, we meet and see this poor widow drop two tiny coins worth very little as far as numbers go her giving would make a zero difference on the temple accountants figures, wouldn't it? Not even a minor change in a decimal point at the end of the festival figures, what she put in. And the disciples are watching. Jesus gathers his disciples to make a point given what they've seen. In contrast to what the bean counters will find when they count the money from the boxes, he tells them that the poor widow gave more than all the rich people put in together. God doesn't look at the surface, but at the heart. This woman gave gave out of her need everything she had willingly, while the rich gave out of their plenty and hardly felt what they had given in. While the crowd, and I suspect the disciples were impressed by what the rich and their display of religion, God sees the heart and it seems to me that these rich are just like the leaders who make a show of following God shiny rotten apples but the one that the crowd ignored is the one that Jesus notices because the poor woman gave to God what is God's and entrusted herself to the God that she knew cared for her she bowed the knee to a God the king and trusted her future to him while the rich in all their pride and power And love of significance failed to recognize the presence of the king when he came. This week and last, we've seen Jesus confront leader after leader of God's people. And again and again, we see them fail to see Jesus as the great and eternal king that God has promised. They refuse to bow the knee. Why? Because they don't have a big enough picture of who this king is. They're looking for a king who would agree with them. He would bow the knee to their will and their importance and their significance. He'd be moulded to fit their ideas of what they think is important and what they think the king should be like. And so Jesus asks the question, who do you say I am? He asks it of the leaders, he asks it of you and me. Will we see Jesus for who he is? Or do we treat him as a king who needs to bow the knee to our understanding of what we want him to be like? Last week, I asked whether we were willing to accept Jesus' authority in all areas of our life, all different parts of our life, because he's king over the whole lot. The passage before us points us to one key area that we need to bow the knee in, and that's in listening to Jesus. The leaders of God's people failed to understand the scriptures. They failed to listen to what it said. They failed to listen to the king when he came. They just read the scriptures when, to work out when it agreed with them. And what they already thought. They didn't bow the knee before the authority of God. They wanted God's word to bow the knee to them and their own elevated self-importance. How do we treat the words of our king? How do we listen to him? Do we listen to him just when it says what we want it to say? When it doesn't confront, when it doesn't rebuke? Are we willing to sit under the authority of our king by sitting under the authority of his word? When we gather together in growth groups, are we sitting under His Word and letting it change us? Or are we just sharing how clever we are, how much we understand, patting each other on the back when we agree with one another? I hope we're doing more than that. I've heard so many stories of us doing more than that. We need to continue to do that and sit under the authority of God's Word. Do we listen to God with ears and hearts that long to submit to be changed? Or do we listen to see how God will make us feel good about ourselves? Because the way we listen to someone reflects what we think of them, doesn't it? Who we think they are. So let me ask you this to finish. Do you listen to Jesus in his word, in the scriptures, in a way that shows that he is the king that we need to bow the knee to? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you sent your son. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came. Help us to be men and women and children who listen. The way that we listen reflects what we think of you and so we pray that you would help us to listen to you as our great God and King. And we pray that you would change us day in, day out. Help us to bow the knee to you as we listen to you in your word. Amen.